0: Let's turn to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Verse 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, and enlarge the borders of their garments. And they love the uppermost rooms at feasts, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not you <laughs> called Rabbi. For one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth. For one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider the very important and precious words of this passage, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to understand what we read and help us to realize that as we open this book and read the words of your Son, we're reading timeless words relevant to today, your very words to us and not the words of any man. Help us to listen with that understanding. Please teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus gave a parable of a vineyard. You'll remember that Jesus said, there was a vineyard that a man lent out to husbandmen, and the husbandmen were laborers in the vineyard who were going to uh, give him the produce. They agreed to give him the produce of the vineyard when he when the time came. And you remember that when the time came, that they didn't give him the produce of the vineyard. And so the master of the vineyard sent servants along, and they killed those servants, and they kicked them out, and they didn't give him the produce. And finally the master says, I'm going to send my son, my beloved son. And when the son comes to the vineyard, the husbandmen of the vineyard, the workers in the vineyard say, this is the son, let's kill him. Right? This is the heir, let's kill him, and take his inheritance. That parable that Jesus gave is what this book of Matthew and really all the gospel accounts are all about. That parable captures what the story of the gospels is all about and the story of the book of Matthew. The vineyard represents Israel. And the leaders are the husbandmen. The husbandmen that the master of the vineyard hires to work in the field or in the vineyard, that's the leadership of Israel that God has commissioned to teach Israel, so that Israel would produce the fruits of righteousness. Of course, the servants that come to the vineyard are the prophets, but in the Gospels and in Matthew, the son that comes to the vineyard is Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah and the King of Israel. And when he comes to his vineyard, when he comes to Israel, when he comes to his own, and he comes out of heaven to earth, He has conflict with the leadership of Israel, and they ultimately end up putting him to death. So the parable captures the story. You'll remember in Matthew, Jesus, he's born the king of the Jews. His ministry is one of healing and teaching, and he's seeking to produce righteousness in the people, for the people to be taught and understand the law. And so they would give to God what God's looking for. And of course we see in the Gospel of Matthew his conflict with the leaders who in his day were the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, and the Pharisees. Jesus now in chapter 23 is in Jerusalem. It's the final week before his death, and the time is rapidly coming to a close before they're going to kill him. And Jesus is in Jerusalem now, and he's already prophesied of his death. He said, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and when we go up there... The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of the Pharisees and the priests and the leadership of Israel. And they're going to kill him and put him to death. And then he'll raise again on the third day. So Jesus knows everything that's about to happen. And in chapter 22, the Pharisees are now saying, we've got to get rid of this guy. We need to figure out some way to kill him. And they're trying to catch him in his words. But as we saw when we looked at Matthew 22, they couldn't do it. They couldn't outwit his wisdom. And so finally it says at the end of chapter 22 that they didn't dare say anything more, right? They had nothing more to say. They, they were afraid to speak. And now Jesus has a lot to say. They have nothing more to say. And Jesus now opens his mouth to say much. To indict them and to expose them. Of course, Jesus has been exposing them all throughout. The Gospel of Matthew. But now an entire chapter is dedicated to Jesus and what he thinks about the scribes and the Pharisees. Think about it. Before, it's not been an entire chapter. It's been little things here and there, little run-ins. But now Jesus is in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the heart of the hive. And he is lifting up his voice against the leadership in Israel and exposing them. We see the centrality of this issue in the Gospels. This is really what it's all about. In fact, Matthew 23 is connected with Matthew 24. It goes right into Matthew 24 because Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of Israel. And what's the scattering all about? What's the destruction of Israel all about? This is the issue, and we're given it in Matthew 23. We find in this chapter the most vehement words of Jesus. Jesus is angry. Jesus speaks harshly. Jesus speaks strongly. And what's the issue all about? It's the issue of the Pharisees and their teaching and their hypocrisy and their behavior. But in short, it's their legalism and their phony righteousness. They're pretending to be somebody. They're pretending to be right with God. They're pretending to teach the people the truth. But in fact, they're hypocrites. This is the same with the Apostle Paul. If you remember, what's the Apostle Paul's most vehement letter? What's the letter where he's angry? What's the letter where he's speaking the most sharply? Do you remember? It's Galatians. And what is he dealing with in the book of Galatians? What is Paul dealing with in the book of Galatians? The exact same thing. Now, of course, the people he's dealing with in Galatians believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but the same vehemence is there. The same sharp words are there. Why? Because the same issue is there. Legalism and phony righteousness. As it was here, so it was in Galatia, Galatia, where people were teaching people that in order to enter the kingdom and be right with God, you had to produce works. You had to keep commandments. You had to do works that God would see supposedly as righteous and therefore count you as righteous. That righteousness was not merely, was not only given through Jesus Christ and faith in Him. So we see what the issue is all about. J.C. Ryle says this, Jesus, knowing that he would soon leave his followers alone, warns them plainly against the false shepherds by whom they were surrounded. Jesus knows he's about to go. It's kind of his last words. His last public words, at least, in the Gospel of Matthew. Next, we're going to only have private discourse with his disciples. And Jesus is publicly warning people and denouncing those whom they think are good, those whom they think are trustworthy, those whom they think are righteous. Jesus is leaving us this warning because this is the real danger throughout all ages, brothers and sisters. This is the relevant warning today. This is what destroys people. See, people think wrongly when they think that it's just acts of sin that really will destroy you. Acts of sin can be forgiven. Acts of sin can be covered by the blood. If you're a believer in Christ, you can sin, as bad as that is, but you can remember that there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. But what happens if you fall into this deception that was creeping into Galatia? What happens if you follow Pharisaic teachers? What happens if you listen to them when they tell you, that you have to do works and you have to follow their example and you have to keep commandments in order to be right with God. Legalism can destroy people and churches. Do you believe that? That's the ultimate warning, isn't it? Legalism. Let's look at what Jesus says in this passage. Verse 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples. He just had been speaking with the Pharisees. He just had asked them a question about the son of David in the temple. And they wouldn't ask him any more questions. And so when he sees that they're silent, he addresses the people. And he says this about the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, whatever they bid you to observe, observe and do. But don't do what they do for they say and do not now in these verses we learn more about the pharisees than we could learn anywhere else we learn what jesus's estimate is of the pharisees and he says three things jesus gives us a statement about them a fact a statement of fact he gives us a statement of recommendation and a statement of denunciation First, the statement of fact. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Fact. He's not arguing with that. They sit in Moses' seat. What that means is, those are the guys who are in the position to teach the people. They sit in Moses' place, teaching the law. That's their office. That's their role. And Jesus isn't arguing with it. He doesn't say they pretend to sit in Moses' seat. He says they do. They are the ones that God hired to teach the people. They're the husbandmen in the vineyard. You remember the prophets in the Old Testament are always telling the leadership, the priests and the teachers, teach the people the truth. You guys are the teachers. Do your job. There they are. They're supposed to make the vineyard produce righteousness by true teaching. And the Pharisees, in their minds saw it this way. They knew they were the teachers, but they thought they were preparing the people, and they thought they were getting the people ready for the coming of the Messiah. They saw themselves as having organized the vineyard. Imagine what the Pharisees and the scribes of those days would have been thinking about the past. They would have thought, wow, look at Israel today. Yes, we're um, oppressed by the Romans, but boy, have we changed since the days of the kings. Because in those days, our fathers... They used to sacrifice to false idols and totally disregarded the law of Moses. Now look, we're teaching the people in every synagogue across every city in Israel about the law of Moses and to obey the law scrupulously. It's going to be so close now, the Messiah is going to come and overthrow the Romans. You see, the parable of the vineyard, if you remember, was shocking to the Pharisees themselves. Jesus says, this is what you guys are like. You're the husbandman in the vineyard, you were killing the servants and you're going to kill the son." They were shocked. They didn't see themselves that way. They even recommended to Jesus the punishment of those husbandmen. He says, what do you think should happen to those guys? Wipe them out. They didn't, even, they didn't think of themselves that way. But that was the spiritual reality of the day. The Pharisees were like those husbandmen. The Pharisees, as much as they thought they were different than their fathers, were the same. And the proof of that is they killed the Messiah. Imagine, not just a prophet now. But the Messiah himself they put to death. So the fact, they're in Moses' seat, and they see themselves that way, and Jesus says, yes, they are. But the question is, how exactly are they not doing their job? In what way exactly are the Pharisees and the scribes not doing the job that God hired them to do? And we see this in verse 3, clearly, explicitly. Jesus says, all therefore, whatever they bid you to observe, that do. Now there's some people who think this is the problem. If you were to ask them, what do you think the problem is with the Pharisees? What What were they not doing? What was the problem? What were they doing that was wrong? And there's some people who think, wrongly, that the Pharisees only taught their traditions. And that they did not teach the law that the only thing Pharisees cared about was their traditions. And they'd heap up these rules, extra rules that aren't even in the law of Moses, and they'd put these heavy rules upon people, and then they'd just sit back, and they wouldn't even do their own rules. They'd just sit back idly and watch people struggle under their traditions that they've given. And this is absolutely false, totally false. We're not to think of the Pharisees as just teaching traditions and then sitting back and laughing at people struggling under their traditions teaching jesus gives a recommendation to the people here jesus says all that they teach do it now if they only taught tradition that wasn't even right jesus wouldn't have said all that they teach do it jesus was actually saying listen to the pharisees they do teach you the law and we're not to make any mistake about it brothers and sisters The Pharisees taught the people the law. They also taught the people their traditions. But even their traditions, they were thinking, were in obedience to the law. And you might even argue that some of their traditions maybe were helpful. But the Pharisees were not merely teaching tradition. They were indeed teaching the law. And they did their own traditions. We can't say that they taught traditions and sat back and did nothing. Jesus says they say and do not. Well, if they were just teaching traditions, he couldn't say that. Because they said and did. In fact, Jesus accuses them multiple times for nullifying the word of God by their traditions. Because you're doing your traditions, you're not doing the law, right? You're tithing all these things, and you're not doing the law. You're giving your money to the temple. You're not taking care of your parents. You're washing your hands. You're not walking so far on the Sabbath, but you're not really obeying the Sabbath. You're not obeying the command to love your neighbor. You see, it's not that they didn't teach love your neighbor. It's not that they didn't teach the Sabbath. It's not that they didn't teach honor your father and your mother. But they taught these things, and they didn't do them, because they did their traditions. They say the good things, but they don't do them. If you're familiar at all with the teachings of the Pharisees, you know that they taught that men are to enter the kingdom of God by being righteous, by true heart obedience, by loving God and loving their neighbor. This was the teaching of the Pharisees. And Jesus commends it. Jesus recommends it. Jesus says, listen to them and do it, but don't do like they do. Here's his condemnation of them. His denunciation. We learn about the Pharisees, three things from Jesus, pretty much the most important things you can know. They were in Moses' seat. They taught good things. And they didn't do what they preached. Don't be fooled to think that they taught only bad things. They didn't do what they preached. Obviously, they didn't do the law, even though they taught it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. I want you to see throughout this sermon that the Apostle Paul simply enlarges on what Jesus has to say. almost. Almost all, or if not all, of what Paul says is simply an enlargement of Jesus himself. And Paul was a Pharisee, so he knows the ins and outs of all of this. And look at Romans chapter 2, verse 17. And now, he's, now Paul is speaking to the teachers. And look what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. And tell me if they're just teaching their traditions. Behold, you are called a Jew. Chapter 2, verse 17. Behold, you are called a Jew, and you rest in the law, and you make your boast of God. And you know his will and approve the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. And you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light of those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, who has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You that preaches that a man should not steal, do you steal? You that say that a man should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You that abhor idols, do you commit sacrilege? You that make your boast of the law, do you break the law and dishonor God? Is there any sense here that the Pharisees are not teaching the law? They are teaching the law, but the same issue is the problem here. They say and do not. Of course, Paul's questions are rhetorical. Of course you don't keep it. You teach it, but do you do it? No, you don't. You teach obedience to the law, but do you obey the law? No, you don't, as Paul goes on to argue. There is none righteous, no, not one. And the Pharisee himself, he used to think he was righteous, is now saying, boys, I was deluded. There is no one righteous, no, not one. What we were doing, Paul's saying from experience, was really hypocrisy and a lie. Paul is simply enlarging upon Jesus. But instead of admitting the truth, and this goes this is true for the pharisees and for modern day pharisees they go by different names these days teachers who teach the law teachers who teach good things we don't really have any complaint about what they teach they teach and they pretend that they do it instead of admitting that they don't they say but they do not and instead of saying i'm guilty of not keeping my own standards and i'm guilty of not teaching of not doing what i teach they pretend that they do it and they make people look to them as the guides. Do what I do and you'll be saved. What do I need to do? Just keep the commandments. Just follow me. Instead of admitting that they fail, the Pharisees in Jesus' day pretended and acted like they were righteous. Look at verse 4 of chapter 23. I used to think wrongly about this verse they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. It's important to understand what this means and what it doesn't mean. I used to think that they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born and lay them on men's shoulders was their traditions. I used to think that that's all the extra stuff. You see, the law is really light. Loving, your, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor yourself, self, that's light. The heavy stuff is tithing and watching what you eat. <laughs> and I used to think, this is their traditions. They're making all these extra rules, and they're putting them on people, and then they're just sitting back and not, and not even helping people. They're not even helping people do, do the heavy, carry those heavy burdens. That's completely ridiculous. Friends, Jesus is just enlarging on what he's just said. They say and do not. Listen to what they say, though, but they say and do not. So they put these heavy burdens on, your, on their shoulders. What's the heavy burden? The heavy burden is the law. The heavy burden is the teaching that he just said, listen to them. They put the heavy burdens on people, grievous to be born. But they themselves, not help, Jesus is saying they don't sit back and not help, they themselves don't even move the burdens themselves. They tell other people to push big bags of rocks around, and they don't touch the big bags of rocks. They don't move them at all. The meaning of this is these teachers stand up and say, friends, we need to keep the commandments if we're going to be right with God. We need to do what God says. We need to obey him. They don't even touch the burdens with one finger. Jesus doesn't say they lift some, but not others. Jesus doesn't say they lift some rocks, but they they just don't lift all of it. He says they don't even touch it with one finger. Not even one. What Jesus is saying here is in contrast to what he said in chapter 11, verse 28. To 30. Jesus invited people who are burdened and heavy laden to come unto him and find rest. He was not saying, all of you who are burdened by tradition, come to me and I'll give you the real thing. I'll give you the law and then you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus is saying, are you burdened by trying to carry something that you can't carry? Are you burdened with this heavy load that teachers are telling you you constantly have to keep? And you're tired of carrying it. You look at these teachers, they look like they're not even breaking a sweat. It's because they aren't breaking a sweat. Right? You look at these teachers and you say, Wow, those guys are doing it and they look happy. I'm trying to do it and I'm really burdened here. But look, they, they do it, so it must be my fault. Jesus is saying, Are you heavy laden? Come to me and I'll give you rest. I will give you rest because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you will find rest. For your souls, because you come to Jesus and He alleviates the burden of the law and He gives you His grace. Jesus says His burden is light and easy. And of course, He's talking about His teaching there. His teaching is easy and light. So easy to be saved, isn't it? Just realize that you can't do it. Just realize that you need Him. Just come to Him and He'll take the burden away from you because He'll carry it for you and He took it at the cross. He will give you righteousness as a gift. Something that you can't produce yourself. This is the contrast between the teaching of the Pharisees and the teaching of Jesus. One is heavy and one is light. But those who preach the heavy burden don't even lift it with one of their fingers. The Pharisees should have taught people that the law was unbearable. They should have taught people that the law was heavy and that none of us can do it, that we need to trust in the grace of the coming Messiah. This is a pretty radical statement that Jesus makes. How much do the Pharisees do in the eyes of Jesus? How much do the Pharisees do in the eyes of Jesus? Zero. Jesus says they say and they do what? Some? They say and do some? They say and do not? They lift it with three of their fingers. They lift it with none of their fingers. Jesus is declaring that the Pharisees do nothing. Extremely important for us to see. And extremely radical in light of what the Pharisees would do. Think about the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. He says, look, if anyone can boast about doing stuff, it's me. I was zealous more than anyone else. I was scrupulously keeping the law. Or at least I thought I was. And then Paul says... And of course Paul lived a zealous life... Seeking to establish his own righteousness. What does Paul say about all his doing? Was it worth anything? Was it loss? It was actually loss. It wasn't worth zero. It was negative. He says it's a bunch of dung. Everything that I did... Everything that I was is nothing worse than nothing. And you can't then, we're learning from Jesus, and Paul is enlarging on this. We're learning from God. You can't look at people anymore and be wowed by what they do. And you say, oh, this is what makes them righteous. Well, even though they don't believe in Jesus, surely God's going to give them a break because look how much they're doing. I mean, they're breaking all this sweat trying to serve God. And Jesus speaks about the spiritual reality of things and says, no, these people do nothing. Zero. They don't lift it with one finger. Nada. What does the law require? Obedience, perfection, love God with all your heart. Do they do it? Zero. Does traveling across the world and being a missionary contribute to obedience to the law? No. Does being kind to your wife contribute to obedience to the law? No. Does going to church and praying a lot contribute to being, ob- is, that, is that obedience to the law? No, it's zero, dung, nothing. Isn't that amazing? This is the most radical teaching in the world. Everyone looked up to the Pharisees. Wow, those are the guys who are doing a lot, tithing scrupulously, praying all the time, teaching all the time, traveling land and sea. As Jesus says, to make a child of hell. Jesus says, it's nothing, worth, worth nothing, zero. How radical is that? How do you see, brothers and sisters? Do you see spiritually or not? When someone doesn't believe in Christ Jesus, and yet they seem in the eyes of the world to be doing so many good things, so many good works, teaching the law even, even if it's the, the things that the law says, do you think, wow, they're really good? Wow, they're really, you know, God's going to give them a break. Or do you think, dung? Do you see spiritually as Jesus saw? Or are you hoodwinked by their hypocrisy? This would have shocked them so much. How offensive is it to talk to someone who's extremely zealous for God and say everything you do is worth nothing? Zero. You've not done a good deed in your life. What do you mean I haven't done? I just raked the neighbor's lawn yesterday for, for nothing. You haven't done a good deed in your life. You need the death of Christ. Because if righteousness comes by the law, Christ died for nothing, right? What you need is to humble yourself and believe in Jesus and believe that you have nothing and that you need him to do everything. Why do the Pharisees and Pharisee-like people do what they do? Why do they teach the law and not do it and then pretend that they do do it? Why aren't they honest? Why? Why do they lower the standard? And Jesus tells us in verse 5. Verse 5 in what follows. All their works they do to be seen of men. So it's interesting that Jesus says they don't do anything. But he acknowledges they do all these things. But in God's sight they don't do anything. So all their works is a waste. They do it to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men rabbi rabbi. Pharisees and Pharisee-like people or legalists do this because they love the prestige and the pride and the accolades that they get from men when men believe their lies that they are actually righteous and they're the teachers of Israel who are teaching you the right thing to do when you look to them and say, wow, these guys, they're something special. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 44, you guys seek the honor that comes from men, but you don't seek the honor that comes from God alone. See, in their thought, they're not thinking, what does God think about me? I want to make sure that I'm right with God. All they care about is, what do men think about me? I want to make sure that Men think that I'm righteous. Men think that I'm good. The the legalistic system rewards them. Jesus says, of course, they have their reward in full in this life. When people look to them and give them the honored place and call them rabbi. This legalistic system of theirs rewards them in this life. But if they were honest with themselves, by their own system they'd be ejected. And certainly by the law of God. It's not about God for these people at all, brothers and sisters. With legalists, it's not about God. With anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation, and are trusting in him for their righteousness, it's not about God. Their religion is not about God. It's about them. And the sad thing is, they're blind to see that, and they really think it's all about God. They fooled themselves into thinking that it's all about God. Let's look at some of the things that they do here. In verse 5, Jesus mentions phylacteries. Now phylacteries were these boxes that Jewish people in the first century and today would wear on their forehead and on their arm, on their left arm. They called it the tefillin, the prayer bands. And the practice—have you ever seen a a Jewish person wear a phylactery, or have you ever seen that in a picture? It's that black box that they put on their forehead, and they also put one on their left arm. They call it the prayer band. This practice began before Jesus before Jesus' day, probably about the 2nd century B.C., with the Pharisees, or at least their predecessors. And it's been practiced all the way unto today. Jews wear it during their weekday morning prayer. They don't wear it all the time. And they wear it because in the law, you'll remember in the law of Moses, that there are four passages in the law of Moses where God tells the people to bind the law upon their arm and to put the law between their eyes. Remember that? And so the Pharisees took this literally. And so they literally took the passages that said this, bind it before, bind it on your arm and before your eyes. They take the passage in context, put it on some parchment, so there'd be four parchments. They put it into these boxes, and they'd strap the boxes under their forehead and under their arm so that it was on their arm near their heart, and so it was between their eyes. So, that, so you know, if you have something in... On your forehead, you can always see it whenever you're looking around, right? You can see the phylactery. So the idea is they're binding the law upon their body so that they can remember the law, because that's what, G- that's what God says. Bind it in front of your eyes and on your arms so that you can remember to do it. That you might remember the law to do it. Now, if you look carefully at the text, it's clearly not a literal thing. God's meaning is always have it in remembrance. Always have it before your mind. In a sense, in front of your eyes at all times, on your arms at all times, because you're using your arms. You're always thinking about the law. You're always thinking about it when you're walking and, and sitting down and eating and standing up and going to bed. You're always thinking about the law. Also, God says, bind it on your doorposts. So when you're coming in and into your house, you're thinking about the law. It's not to be taken literally. They would also put the law in little boxes on their doors. They do this today. So when a when a, an Orthodox Jew, it's the Orthodox Jews who do this, will walk through their uh, threshold, they'll always uh, kiss the the law that's on the door. For them, it's supposed to help them remember the law, but in the law it says, remember it to do it. Now, Jesus mentioned something else here. Enlarge the borders of their garments. Now, it's interesting that the phylacteries, while there's no basis in the law to do that literally, there is something in the law that God required the Jews to do. And this was what's called the tzitzith, or the blue tassels that they would wear, and they still do, on the borders of their garments. You ever seen that before? Special garment that they'd wear, and on the four corners they have these tassels. And you'll find this in the book of Numbers. In fact, you can turn there with me. Look at Numbers chapter 15. (coughs) Numbers 15. And verse 39. 38, excuse me. I can't tell you what page number in that book. Numbers 15, 37, 38. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto them for a fringe, that you may look upon it and remember how much? All the commandments of the Lord, to what? Just to remember it? To do them. And that you seek not after your own heart and your own eyes. Notice it's commanded in the Bible not to seek after your own heart. Not to follow your own heart. After which you used to go a-whoring, that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord, your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. So in wearing the tassels, they were actually doing that in obedience to the law. And the purpose of that law was to remember the commandments to do them. Now it's, uh, Jesus must have worn the tassels. Two, Two reasons that he must have worn the tassels. One, it's commanded in the law. And two, you find no criticism uh, from anyone about Jesus not wearing the tassels, which they would have cri- criticized him if he didn't, right? So Jesus himself would have worn them. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with these, brothers and sisters. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with wearing tassels or even, I would argue, putting a phylactery on your head. Nothing intrinsically wrong with that. If it helps you remember, it's simply a tool to remember. And we see throughout the Bible, God gives us tools to remember. Remember we talked about holidays. Even the um, the Lord's Supper is a tool that Christ gave us to remember his death. But the problem with these things is that they tend to legalism and superstition. They tend to legalism and superstition, where you start thinking that, oh, because I'm wearing this flattery or because I'm wearing these tassels, I'm more righteous than the person who's not wearing them, Right? Or because I take communion, hopefully no one thinks this because you'd be completely forgetting the purpose of t- communion, I'm more righteous than someone who doesn't take communion. Or I'm righteous because I take communion. Or even superstition. Some people in Jesus' day and even today will wear the flaccories and they think that when they wear them, the demons can't hurt them because they're obeying God. Right? But Christians can fall into this trap of legalism and superstition. It's kind of like wearing a what-would-Jesus-do bracelet or a cross around your neck. There's nothing intrinsically wrong about that, right? Why do people wear those what-would-Jesus-do bracelets? To help them remember, right? Same thing with the flactory, basically. cross around your neck. Why? To remember. Now, do you think you're better than other people because you wear a cross around your neck? Are you more righteous than someone because you wear a what-would-Jesus-do bracelet? Some could think that. I'm more righteous because I'm taking precaution. <laughs> right? There's also superstition. Some people think I'm divinely protected because I'm wearing a cross around my neck. Brothers and sisters, if you ever think that you're divinely protected because you wear anything, that's superstition. Okay? That's nothing but pure superstition for thinking you're protected by wearing anything. If the point of these tools in the law, was to remember to keep the commandments. What good are they if you don't keep them? Why do you think God is going to protect you if you wear a phylactery or a tassel, but you're not actually keeping his commandments? Which is what the phylactery and the tassel are supposed to help you do, right? See, men love these kind of things because they're easy. And they puff you up in pride. And you can fool yourself into thinking you're obeying God when you're not really obeying God. Self-righteous people don't like to examine whether they're loving God with all of their heart. They like to examine whether they're not eating the, right, the wrong things, whether they're eating the right things, whether they're wearing the right things, right? This is what self-righteous people like to think about. Why? Because they're easy. And they can say, I've done it. And they haven't. What are we to remember as Christians? We're to remember not to keep the commandments but we're to remember the gospel of grace, that we are accepted by God by grace, and that we're cared for by God and loved by God by grace. That it's not a cross around our neck that divinely protects us. It's the grace of God that protects us. And if we die, it's his grace that's working for good in our lives to protect us. No superstition in Christianity. So the Pharisees wore these things The flatteries and the garments, why? Because they wanted to look righteous before men. Jesus is calling them out here. That's why they do these things. The thing that legalism does is it produces envy and the lust for glory. The Apostle Paul also enlarges on this. Whenever he talks about the flesh and legalism, he always talks about strife and envy. He warns us and says, beware that when you start thinking about what you need to do in the law, you're going to lower the standard and you're going to become envious and there's going to be strife. Why? Because legalism says this, I can do it. Legalism says, I have done it. Legalism says, he hasn't done it. Legalism says, wow, he's done better than me. Legalism says, oh no, he's done better than me. That's what legalism does, and legalism says. It's all about you and what you do, your abilities and your glory. It's a merit-based honor system before men. And for that reason, legalism cannot produce humility. Why can't legalism produce humility? What if you were to say to someone, you need to be humble. Be humble. Because if they think that they do it, then they're not humble anymore. right? Legalism is a vicious cycle of pride. Because no matter what good thing you do, the fact that you do it, and the fact that it's about you, makes you think better of yourself than others. Only grace can produce humility. Because only grace says, it's not about me. Only grace says, it's not about what I do. It's not about my works or his works. It's not about me being better than anyone. It's not about anyone being better than me. It's about God's free gift, undeserved. Legalism is about exalting yourself. And grace is about humbling yourself. Being a spiritual beggar, as Jesus would say. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Realizing, I've got nothing. I've got no assets. I've got no obedience to the law. The law condemns me. I need God's grace. That's, what, that's the only thing that produces true humility, brothers and sisters. And as we move on in our text, I want to point out something very important here. That the very term rabbi indicates this false idea of greatness. Did you know that the word rabbi means my great one? Did you think that it means teacher It doesn't. The word rabbi is broken down. Rab and I, or E. Rab means great. And I, putting I at the end of a Hebrew word, means my. When you call someone a rabbi or rabbi, you're saying, You are my great one. I belong to you because you're great. That's what rabbi indicates. For them, it meant they had great learning. You know, it wasn't like they had great strength. These guys might have been, you know, pretty wimpy physically. And they called them great. Why did they call them great? Because they had great learning. But here's the thing to catch they called them rabbi because they were great in the eyes of the people because of their great learning. You are a great one because of your great learning. There's a difference between saying someone has great learning and saying, Because someone has great learning, that someone is great. They're great either because they got the great learning or they're great because the great learning brings them greatness. And the Pharisees loved this honor of being called rabbi. In fact, it was a required title in their day. They required people to call them, and others who had great learning, great ones. And now Jesus, in verse 8 to 12, turns from talking about how the Pharisees operate in legalism And he turns to the disciples and tells them how they're to operate. And it's not to be in legalism, but in grace. And the first thing Jesus says to them is, do not be called rabbi. Brothers and sisters, the word rabbi is to have no place in our vocabulary for anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? The word rabbi is to have no place in our vocabulary for anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because why? Because he's the only great one. And we all are equally ungreat. Right? There's nothing great about us, brothers and sisters. And what we have, the Bible hammers this into our heads over and over and over again. Whatever we have, we've received from him. Right? Whatever we have, we've just borrowed from him. If you see a gift in someone, you're not to think, that person is great, rabbi. Right? Now, you say, no, this person has been given a gift from God. Jesus says, we're all equal, we're all brothers. When he says we're all brothers in verse 8, he means we're equal. We're equal in our ungreatness, we're equal in our need, and we're equal in Christ. The world thinks in terms of who is great. That's probably one of the, the most important mark of the world. The world thinks in terms of who is great. Christians, Jesus says, are not to think like that, because you don't call anyone rabbi. You don't call anyone great. That's how the world thinks, but not how you are to think. And in this way, Jesus is showing us that we can still acknowledge gifts in people. But we know what the true source is. And if God is the source, then God alone is actually the great one. God alone is actually the teacher. God alone is actually the savior. God alone is actually the one who does anything. He's the one who's doing the work, right? Paul enlarges upon this, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says the very same thing. And here's what he says. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you have believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos has watered, but God is the one who gave the increase. So then, neither is he that plants anything, neither he that waters anything, but God is someone or something that gives the increase. He summarizes in verse 22, 21, therefore let no one glory in men. See, everything in Paul is already found in Jesus. What is Paul saying here? He's speaking to Christians who are tempted to think, oh, these people are great. Apollos is greater than Paul. Paul is greatest than Peter. Peter is greater than Apollos. I belong to them. Paul's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Those who plant and those who water are nothing. Because it's God who's the one who gives the increase. It's God who's the one who gives the gift. He's the one who's great. He's the one who taught you. He's the one who saved you. Let no one glory in men. Call no one rabbi. You see, we're not to think that there are no offices in the church. Obviously, Christ himself recognizes that the Pharisees and scribes are teachers in Israel. And the New Testament tells us that God gives some to be teachers. But we understand they're not great. And whatever they have is a gift. And ultimately, God is our teacher and not the person. As Brad said right before we sang the the song, he said, you are our shepherd. Right? God is our shepherd. Do you realize the Pharisees absolutely hated Christ for this? Because he was constantly doing this. Jesus was constantly exposing the Pharisees and showing the people they weren't rabbis. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Because Jesus was great, and he made them look not great in both their teaching and their righteousness. They were envious, it said. Right? They were envious. They were envious that the people thought Jesus was great. And that they weren't thinking they were great anymore. And they hated Jesus for that. They were envious. They didn't want him alone to be the rabbi. In verse 9, Jesus prohibits another title. Call no one father. Now obviously if we consider this verse in the context of the entire Bible, Jesus is not talking about uh, your physical father. And that you can't call your dad your dad. Because he is your dad. He's your physical dad. But Jesus is talking about calling your religious leaders father. As was done in Jesus' day and as is still done today in some churches. You see, when you call a religious leader a father, you're not meaning it in a physical way, right? When you say, my father, you're not meaning you're the one who gave birth to me. You're the one who gave me life, but something else that God doesn't want. And I'm going to let John Gill say, uh, because his words here are very fitting. John Gill says this about this passage. Not but that children may and should call their natural parents their fathers, and such who have been instrumental in the conversion of souls may be rightly called by them their spiritual fathers as servants and scholars also may call those that are over them and instruct them their masters. Our Lord does not mean by any of these expressions to set aside all names and titles of natural and civil distinction among men, but only to reject all such names and titles as are used to signify an authoritative power over men's consciences in matters of faith and obedience in which God and Christ are only to be attended to. This has to do with authority. You know, we think of the word father as just a friendly term. You know, you call a Roman Catholic priest father, and it's just kind of this friendly thing, like, you're taking care of me. That's not how it was in Jesus' day. And in some cultures today, um, we would see the difference. Fathers meant you have the right and the authority over your family. In some cultures today, you don't challenge your father's authority at all, even if he's wrong. To say father is to honor him and to submit to his authority and to obey him. It's not here stated as a fact of nature. Call no one your father. Well, he's naturally my father. I know, don't call him that. But as a title of status, to call someone your father who's not your physical father is to say that this person is over you and is your authority. This, of course, is related to the tradition of the elders, which in Jesus' day, they said that There was an unbroken divine tradition from Moses and you had to always submit to the elders that were over you. And to call a Pharisee or a scribe your father was to say, you're an authority that I'm to give unquestioned obedience to. It would be impious to disobey. And what does Jesus say? God alone is to be honored with unquestioned obedience he alone is good true and infallible and not men the idea that get that these churches or religions embrace when they say that there's an unbroken authoritative tradition that's contained infallibly within the elders means basically that men are infallible you always have to listen to them you don't disobey brothers and sisters we are to honor our leaders, and our parents, but we may and must disobey if need be because they are not infallible. Jesus is condemning here unquestioned obedience to anyone other than God, as is so often found in religion. A religion that is based on the authority of men is the devil's playground. You ever heard of a religion that's based on the authority of man? It doesn't matter if you point to the scripture and say, yeah, but what you're teaching contradicts. It doesn't matter. We're the authorities, and God has divinely protected the truth in the authorities, and I'm your father. Who's your daddy? Do you know, do you know this? It doesn't matter, because you can't refute them, because they're the authority. Who gives you the authority to challenge me? We're protecting the truth. And in verse 10, Jesus, once again, points out another title, Master. And once again, it's the exact same principle. The Jews had a legend that King Jehoshaphat, when he saw one of the teachers in Israel, ran out to him and said, Father, Father, Rabbi, Rabbi, Master, Master. It seems like Jesus is aware of this legend. He's, he's picking out all those titles because the scribes would use this legend to say, See, you need it's required that you call these teachers your, your Abbey. Your rabbi and your Mori, your master. And Jesus is pointing them all out and saying, no, it's not required that you call them these things. You're not to call anyone these things because God alone is your authority. Jesus is refuting the Pharisaic titles that give artificial authority to people. It's not that you can't recognize someone as your teacher or a, a teacher, excuse me, or has a gift of teaching but you understand that they are not your ultimate teacher. They are not your authority. Christ is. They never are to be given unquestioned obedience. And if they teach, they teach. If they teach truly, they teach by the gift of God, and they're actually nothing. So in verse 12, or excuse me, verse 11, look at what Jesus says. But, here's the contrast. He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. So all these titles imply greatness. You call him rabbi, you call him your father, you call him your master, because they're the great ones. And Jesus now reverses the world's wisdom and the world's order. And he completely redefines greatness. The great one is the servant. That doesn't make any sense in the first century and even today to people who don't understand the wisdom of Christ. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, wait, to humble yourself is to basically say you're not great. Now, what's Jesus doing here? See, before God, brothers and sisters, there is no one who's great. And when you're honest before God, you realize that you aren't great. Ask yourself, are you like a Pharisee who says and does not? but pretends to do? Are you honest about the fact that you don't obey the law? Are you honest about the fact that you're a sinner? And if you're a sinner, if you don't obey the law, then you're not righteous and you're not great. You're not a morally great person, are you? None of us here are. None of us here can say that we're morally great. In fact, what we deserve is not praise, is not the chief seats in the synagogues. What we deserve is is shame everlasting and the punishment of God. There is no one who's great. And ironically, Jesus says that greatness has a whole new dimension. Great ones are those who realize they aren't great and serve God by God's gift. It's not about worldly greatness. It's about humility being greatness. But I think Greatness in the eyes of Jesus has a whole new meaning. It doesn't mean you're anything. But God commends humility. God alone is truly great. God doesn't need to be humble. Because he is great. And he gives gifts to man. And so therefore he's to be glorified. We glorify him for his greatness. And the greatest gift that God gives to man freely and undeservedly is salvation and life through his son Jesus. Because Jesus came, not just to check out the vineyard and kick out the husbandmen and install other husbandmen who would teach the law, merely teach the law and just put everyone under a heavy burden. But Jesus came to teach the law, to show the heavy burden, and then to alleviate the law by dying on the cross and taking that burden upon himself and taking our sins upon himself so that we could be righteous, not of our own works, but as a gift. Righteous in God's sight, blameless in God's sight, spotless in God's sight, acceptable in God's sight, and welcomed into the kingdom of God as a gift, an undeserved gift that you can never for all eternity glory in, in yourself. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing how God brings people to heaven and at the same time removes all of their pride? You'd think it would be impossible. It would be impossible in the system of the world. The humble, when they hear the gospel, rejoice and are glad. The humble realize, you're right, I'm guilty. I got nothing. I don't have anything to commend myself. I'm not great, but there's a great God who's loving me, even though I'm a sinner, and I accept that gift through faith. The proud, on the other hand, are blind, and they say, what do you mean I'm a sinner? I keep the commandments. I'm a good person. Don't call me a bad person. I'm not perfect. God doesn't require perfection. I'm good. I'm going to get into heaven because God knows that I deserve it and they reject the gospel. The most important thing that you can do is humble yourself, admit your unrighteousness and your nothingness, and believe in the gospel of grace. That's the most important thing that you can do. There's nothing more important than that. And brothers and sisters, if you have done it, let me encourage you in this. You have a rabbi. Who's your rabbi? <laughs> Who's your rabbi in your rabbi? Your rabbi is God. Because as a Christian, you can say, my great one, to God and not to any man. Do you see God as great? And is he yours? And is he your great one? Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to add a new vocabulary to your, to your words. Add the word rabbi in your prayer. Oh, sorry. Add a new word to your vocabulary. Yeah. Add a new word to your vocabulary. In your prayers, let me encourage you. Call God rabbi and think about how great he alone is for saving you, for creating you, for giving you the gifts that you have, but ultimately for saving and redeeming your life from destruction. God is alone is great. Let me just close with the words of the psalmist that you can say as a Christian. I will extol thee my God, O King I will bless thy name forever and ever every day will I bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable let's pray Father in heaven, we recognize your greatness. That you alone are great and no other. And you are our rabbi. You are our great one for saving us. And we just thank you. And Lord, we thank you for opening our eyes to see our foolishness in thinking we were anything. And most of all, for giving us righteousness as a gift. Please encourage all saints in this valley, across this country, in the world, encourage them, Lord, with these truths that you are great and greatly to be praised for the things that you have done. Cause us daily to think about these things and to remember that you alone are great. We praise you in Jesus' name.